0: is eliminated, but what comes out of our hearts, it defiles us because it proceeds from evil thoughts and adultery, fornication, thefts, deceit, pride. Those are just some of the things that Jesus listed. He says that's coming out of you, that's what's defiling you. It's not because you're living in a sin-steeped world, it's because of the sin in your own heart. And it would be child's play for us to look at this passage and point out all of the sins to feel morally superior, but the truly perceptive will say, I know why this chapter is in the Bible. It's because it's me that we're reading about today. That I'm just like them and I need to humble my heart before the Lord in repentance and to seek him and his ways. That I am in need of forgiveness and salvation just like everyone else. So Genesis 38 verse one. And it came to pass at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adullamite whose name was Hera. And Ju- Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he married her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. She conceived yet again and bore a son and called his name Shelah. He was at Kazib when she bore him. Last week, we talked about the, we're introduced to Joseph and uh, how he was stripped of his colorful coat by his brothers. He was sold as a slave by those traders in Egypt. And now this chapter is like a sudden shift abruptly away from him to Judah, who's the third son of Leah, and he was the one who suggested they sell Joseph. Now, the line of Judah is very important because from him descended the line of kings David, Solomon, and leading all the way to Jesus Christ, the king of kings. And it's fitting that Jesus didn't have a son because the line ends, yet continues with him because he is the everlasting king of kings and lord of lords. So Joseph was sold. His father Jacob mourned his passing. He hadn't died, but he was told that he had. And Judah, he left his brothers at that time and visited a man named Hira of Adullam, who was his friend, as we'll see. He met there the daughter of Shua, a Canaanite, and he married her. It seems Judah did this without the consent or the uh, from his dad. And they had three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And we're told they were in Kaizib when Selah, Shelah was born, And that birthplace, it's interesting because it means deceptive or disappointing. And the idea is, is that you're thirsty and you're going to try to find water in the brick. You're like, oh, I know there's a brook or there's a a stream over here where we can get water, we can be satisfied, and you turn up and it's dry. And you're like, oh, disappointing. It's a deceitful brook. I thought there was going to be water in it, but it was dry. And this is really a theme that we'll see woven throughout this chapter. Verse 6. Then Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. And Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and marry her, and raise up an heir to your brother. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his. And it came to pass when he went into his brother's wife that he emitted on the ground, lest he should give an heir to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, therefore he killed him also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown. For he said, lest he also die like his brothers. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. So Judah, he takes a wife for his son Ur, likely of the Canaanites, named Tamar. Ur did not live long enough to have a child because he was, it says very plainly, he was wicked in God's sight and he killed him. Ur received his wages earlier than he thought. The wages of sin is death and it's God who decides when that needs to be paid. And after he died, Judah instructed Onan to sire a child on behalf of his brother because that's we, we see it called leveret marriage later in Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. That would come in centuries later but well, we see this was a practice that you would raise up an heir for your brother, and it would be like your brother's son, not yours, because the the uh, genealogy would pass through that child. Widows without a son in ancient times it drove many to poverty. A grown child provided security; they were able to protect and provide for their mother. And Onan he knew that the child would not be his, and so. Though he was willing to sleep with her, he deceptively went through the act of copulation, but he employed the withdrawal method of contraception, and he's like, I don't want her to be pregnant. I don't want her son not being mine, because it's going to be hers. Don't want that. And so more than the act itself, the scripture says God looked at his intent. He says it displeased the Lord because of the motive in his heart, and so he slew him as well. Psalm 68, five, it says, a father of the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy habitation. So God saw Onan's shameful treatment of Tamar and ended him. Now it's likely what God did here seems very harsh. It seems harsh to us because we and others have also been guilty of sin and here we are. We have not been wiped from the earth, We've continued to live. But realize God is just and righteous in what he did because the wages of sin is death and it's God who decides when it's due. Spurgeon said, the Lord usually brings the rod before the ax. And this is consistent with the Lord. We see that with Jesus. Twice he went into the temple to purge it, to cleanse it with a whip made of cords. He's overturning the table's Forty years later, what would happen because of the sin of his people who made his house that was to be a house of prayer, a den of thieves? Well, God had the Romans overthrow it and sack it, destroying the temple to the ground. So the rod came before the axe. There was that warning, warning after warning, but then it was time to pay. God said in Ezekiel 18:4, "'Behold, all souls are mine. "'The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine.'" The soul who sins shall die. Now we should never assume premature death is God's judgment upon the person for their sin. Because we see many people in the scriptures that died young who were good in the sight of God. We see that in Abijah the son of Jeroboam in 1 Kings 14. He said there is something good in your son's heart towards God. And so he will not survive this illness. Now, the Bible spells it out for us in this passage. We don't have to guess. And it's told us explicitly so we know we don't fall into the trap that Judah did where we thought there's something wrong with Tamar. Something's wrong with her that's making my sons ill. God's swift judgment of Ur and Onan, doesn't it magnify the grace that God's extended to us? That he's been gracious to let us live, to give us opportunity to know him, to repent, to be saved and delivered. Because who among us has never stumbled or been enslaved by, been overtaken by, wicked thoughts or sexual sin? And who among us has not condemned others when we have been guilty of doing the same? Because even looking with lust, Jesus said, is like committing adultery in your heart. It's ironic, isn't it? The one who's never been guilty of fornication or adultery can be filled with pride because they haven't, and thus be in sin. Now, the fact that we and others have been allowed to remain on earth, though guilty of sin, it shows God's heart to preserve life, to deliver sinners from death, to offer forgiveness, healing, and eternal life. And we sung some of that today, some of the words of our songs But let's consider the lyrics of the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32, 39. This is God speaking. He says, Now see that I, even I, am He, and there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal, nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. Ur and Onan, the wages of sin was death. And God said, Today is the day you're gonna pay up. They hadn't, they didn't know it was that day but no one could deliver from God's hand. And in the same way, the same hand that um, God brings to judge, he also saves and protects and guards and takes vengeance upon his enemies. Because at the end of the song, Deuteronomy 32, 43, listen to what it says. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his adversaries. He will provide atonement for his land And his people. And so he says, Rejoice that I save lives, that I protect, that I take vengeance upon my enemies. And then there's this prophetic gem that we see that he will provide atonement for his land and his people. Through the blood of Jesus, atonement, the payment has been provided so we can be forgiven, so we can be released from the bondage of sin and death that we can be redeemed. To think of God's judgment and vengeance without his love and his grace, it's a skewed image of God that is not accurate. So after the death of Ur and Onan, Judah basically disowns Tamar. Instead of taking care of her in his household, look what he does. He sends her back to her father and he says, dwell there until my son Shelah is old enough and then I'll give him to you. As a husband. And Tamar obediently did what she was told. But Judah had no intention to give Shalah his son to her. Empty words that betrayed a deceitful heart because he said, lest he also die by her. So he says, I'm not going to. Yeah, she can be way over there. He had no concern for her future. He was just thinking of preserving his line. He had already lost two sons and he didn't want to lose his last son. And if he had no intention of giving his son to Tamar, at least he could have freed her by allowing her to marry among her people. And he didn't do what, what Naomi did with Ruth, right? Ruth, she was widowed. She continued to live in Naomi's house, protected and preserved by her. She, they supported each other. But he says, go back to your dad's house. Hang out there until Shelah's grown. And if we were looking for compassion, mercy, or honesty in Judah, we would be disappointed. It's not there. There's none of that to find. Verse 12, Now in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. And Judah was comforted and went up to his sheep shears at Timnah, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And it was told Tamar, saying, Look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself, and sat in an open place, which was on the way to Timna, For she saw that Shelah was grown and she was not given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot because she had covered her face. Then he turned to her by the way and said, please let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. So she said, what will you give me that you may come in to me? And he said, I will send a young goat from the flock. So she said, will you give me a pledge till you send it? Then he said, what pledge shall I give you? So she said, your signet and cord and your staff that is in your hand. Then he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. So she arose and went went away and laid aside her veil and put on the garments of her widowhood. So after the death of his sons and time Judah's wife also died, there was a period of customary mourning that was passed, and he went to his sheep shears in Timnah with Hera, his friend. Now, somehow word, I don't know how, was received by Tamar, hey, your father-in-law is coming up to Timnah to shear his sheep. And it was apparent to her that her father-in-law Judah had no intention to give her Shelah as husband, and so she hatched a scheme. She put off the garments of widowhood, which made her easily identify identifiable and probably to be avoided. She had gone through two young husbands, and she sat alone in a conspicuous way on the way. She knows something about the character of her father-in-law, and she waits. It's like the trap is set. She dressed and wore a veil that fulfilled a dual purpose. It said, my body is for hire, and it also concealed her identity so that Judah didn't recognize her at all. And he went after her, it says, like an ox to the slaughter or a fool to the correction of the stocks. And he propositions her. He says, let me have sex with you. And he offers a young goat as payment. They begin this negotiation. He doesn't have the payment on hand. And so she says, will you provide security or a pledge? Now, when I was a kid, we had this rec center that was by our house. And they had table tennis and pool table and... And everything was free, but you had to have something to give them to check out the items. Like if I want to play pool, I had to give them my driver's license or my, my house key, something that would say, this is valuable to me, and I'll come back so I can have it. I will return the, the bats and the balls so that I can have my license or my keys back. So that's what she said. You know, give me security. Give me a deposit. Give me something that's valuable to you, that identifies you, that I can... Hold until you pay me. And so she asked him to leave his signet, cord, and staff in her care as his pledge. And these were objects that would identify him. So his signet was like his personal mark. It was probably on a cord around his neck. And then his staff, he carried it wherever he went. It was a specific one. If you'd put it in a pile, Judah would be able to find his walking stick. So he agrees to the deal, he sleeps with Tamar, she conceives by him. Then they go their separate ways and she puts on her garments of widowhood again. In the ancient world, we see that prostitutes, they were accepted but a deprecated member of society. The Bible, like at this time, it speaks of harlotry very matter-of-factly. There's no moral judgments made here, um, but we do have the whole Bible that we need to be considering when we talk about prostitution or harlotry. We see after the rape of Dinah, her brothers, they said, should they treat our sister like a harlot? And so the idea was it was shameful to be treated in such a fashion that was just dehumanizing, transactional for personal gratification. And the word harlot is the same in both texts. Prostitution, it was a lifestyle that people were sometimes forced into um, out of necessity to provide for themselves and, and it often or they could be coerced into it or it was something that was uh, it would spoil their marriage opportunity now through the from the beginning mankind has hijacked sex for his own ends for personal pleasure and financial gain when God designed it to be enjoyed within the marriage union between a man and a wife and was the means of bearing children for the family Now, today, it seems like there's no shortage of people who are willing to cash in on their looks and the lustful looks of others to make money for themselves. Really, a get-rich scheme that ends in spiritual poverty. And despite hookup apps and sex work being legal, the Bible's very clear that sex, this fornication, the prostitution, it's immoral and sinful. And you don't have to employ the services of a harlot to prostitute yourself, I think uh, the most common way today is online porn. It's a a modern equivalent. It's really a satanic innovation that works to ruin and drag souls young and old to hell. And Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6.18, Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Now we've all heard shocking statistics about the prevalence of pornography, sexual addiction, and at times I thought, well, it, it may be interesting to know if it's a problem in church circles or in our church. And, but, you know, even if we did a survey and we could say 50% of the people struggle with this or have, it, have a problem with it, it, it doesn't change people. You can read all the stats you want. It doesn't change people. The fact is, none of us are anonymous to God. He sees what happens that's hidden. And you can veil your face in incognito mode, or you can go on the dark web. It's all in the light before God. So the, action, the question, the action for us is, will we take decisive action to fight back by confessing and forsaking sin or just surrender for, in the war for our souls? So seeking porn, illicit sex, it's a symptom of a heart that is not seeking God. That's not choosing him. So stop believing the lie that no one's being hurt because it's you who's being hurt and others too. Genesis 38 verse 20. And Judah sent the young goat by the hand of his friend, the Adulamite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand. But he did not find her. Then he asked the men of that place, saying, Where is the harlot who was openly by the roadside? And they said, There was no harlot in this place. So he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. Also the men of the place said there was no harlot in this place. Then Judah said, Let her take them for herself, lest we be shamed. For I sent this young goat, and you have not found her. So Judah, he hooks up with the harlot he makes good on his word. He doesn't go to pay himself. He sends his buddy, Hira, to pay. Seems a bit ashamed of his encounter. That may be reading into things, but he sends his buddy to go. He's like, oh, she was around this area. you know? Okay, I'll do that for you. So he goes to provide the goat, and he starts making inquiries and go, well, there, I couldn't find her. And when I asked the, the locals, I said, so where's the harlot that was hanging out here? There's no harlot here. So he's like, oh, this is awkward. So he comes back, and reports to Judah, and Judah's like, well, let her keep the signet cord and staff, lest we be shamed. He, he was fine to seek her services in private, but he didn't want to be the laughing stock of the village because he's trying to pay a har- that he went into Harlot, and he's trying to pay her and can't find her, and so he's like, all right, we're just gonna be done with this, and uh, yeah, paying the phantom Harlot, that's embarrassing, so we're just gonna pretend like this never happened. Well, Verse 24, and it came to pass. About three months after that, Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child by harlotry. So Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. When she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, by the man to whom these belong, I am with child. And she said, please determine whose these are, the signet and cord and staff. So Judah acknowledged them and says, She had been more righteous than I because I did not give her her to Shela, my son, and he never knew her again. So three months after this interlude, he hears a message that Tamar, your daughter-in-law, she's played the harlot and she's pregnant. In her widowed state, she was obliged to, she was obligated to remain chaste and a widow until she was remarried. But Judah had withheld his son from her. And now Judah, he is furious. He is enraged she would do this thing. And he says, Bring her out and let her be burned. Burned, mother and child. Burned completely. That's what that word says. When you had the Passover lamb and you didn't eat the whole thing on the day, you were to burn it completely. He says, let's burn her. And where did he go? He showed up at her house. He hadn't shown up at her house for a very long time. But he shows up on this day because he is angry and he is gonna bring the hammer down on her. Now, two things come to mind. Proverbs eighteen thirteen. it says, he who answers a matter before he hears it it is folly and a shame to him." He hadn't even talked to her, but he has this strong judgment about what has happened. He didn't, he didn't even, like he just is like angry because he heard of what she did before he even talked to her. And I'm reminded also of King David's strong reaction. Nathan, the prophet, comes to him and he tells him the story about, well, there was this rich man and a poor man and this poor man had a lamb that he loved like his own child and the rich man, he was having a party and there was a guest and so he stole the neighbor's single lamb and he slaughtered it for his guest. And David's like, that man should be killed. And he said, you're the man. You killed Uriah the Hittite, and you committed adultery with his wife. And you did it all to cover up your sin. And so what David did privately, he was rebuked publicly for. Matthew Henry said, "...it is a common thing for men to be severe against those very things in others, in which yet they allow for themselves. And so in judging others, they condemn themselves." So Judah, he's playing the hypocrite. He runs over to her house to punish her. She had been chased. She's still wearing her garments of widowhood. And when she was brought out to be executed, she goes, by the way, I'm pregnant by the person whose these are. Any idea who they belong to? The signet, the cord, and the staff? Judah owned it. His rage was quelled by this revelation. And he acknowledged, hey, I do know the owner of that. I am the guilty party. And she, despite her harlotry, has been more righteous than me. Neither was perfect, but he admitted he had done worse because he said, I was going to give you my son, but I withheld him from you. His hypocrisy was evident to all because he had lied. Now, to his credit, he relented from bloodshed. It wasn't his power to kill, but he chose not to. In God's providential wisdom, it's like to injure Tamar and her child was to injure himself. And it says he knew her no more. So he provided for her more than just a young uh, goat from the flock. So the heir was provided in a most unexpected way. Now, it would be a shame to look at this passage and to connect it only with our need to avoid sexual sin or hypocrisy. That may not be a struggle for you at the moment. But Judah hones in on our point of application that has nothing to do with lust or fornication. Judah failed to keep his word. Had he kept his word by giving Shelah, his son, to her as husband, he would not have fornicated with her. She would not have been pregnant by him. Turn to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 35. It's very easy to condemn actions, the things that you look at or the things that you say, without hitting the heart. Because the heart is where the problem comes from, the corruption that's within us that leads to deceive and to conceal our sin. Matthew twelve thirty five, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. There's many people who have said things to me over the years that, over time, proved to be false but God's not going to judge me for those. He's going to judge me for what I've said. Our throwaway comments that we make, off-handed remarks, those are all known to God and he will call us to account on them. When Laura and I were wed, I was asked the question, do you take this woman to be your wife? To live together in holy matrimony? To love her, to honor her, to comfort her, to keep her in sickness and in health, forsaking all others as long as you both shall live. I said, I do. There's a lot in that vow that I am accountable for before the Lord. God will hold me to that. And if you are married, he will hold you to that. And so may God remind you of the things that you've said or perhaps neglected, you've said, but you've neglected to do. You've neglected to follow through with them, to love one another, to honor, comfort, keep, holding one another till death do you part. Now It's better for us to be like the son in the parable who refused at first to do the work in his father's vineyard, but later repented. He regretted and he went, he went and did it. So he, like, he broke his word, but he did what was right in the sight of God. The God who gave us minds and language and the ability to communicate, he's able to speak to our hearts right now, reminding us of a sentence we said 10, 20 years ago, so that we might go, oh yeah, I did say that. Totally forgot about it. That we might make good on what we have said. Genesis 38, 27. Now it came to pass at the time for giving birth that behold, twins were in her womb. And it was so when she was giving birth that the one put out his hand and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand saying, this one came out first. Then it happened as he drew back his hand that his brother came out unexpectedly and she said, how did you break through? This breach be upon you. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand and his name was called Zerah. So Tamar, not one child, but two child, children. She has twins. And there was an arm that appeared first, and she's like, okay, this is the firstborn. And uh, suddenly, the arm was pulled out of sight, and a whole other child just came through. And Lay's like, what? Like, how did that happen? And uh that word Perez, it means to make a breach or to break down. Now we use that term breach, like when a whale breaches the water and it comes down with this massive splash or when law enforcement breaches a door with their battering ram, they breach that, they break through, right? So God, you have this, in his wisdom, he uses this fleshly encounter between Judah and Tamar to make way for a baby boy through whom the Messiah would come our Lord Jesus, and we see him in, in the genealogy both in Matthew 1.3 and Luke 3.33, who provides eternal life for sinners. It's like God's grace burst forth into the sin-soaked world through Jesus Christ, and he used Judah and Tamar in his redeeming story. And God kept his word to send a Messiah to be the savior for his people. And boy, we need saving, don't we? So this midwife, she was surprised by this unexpected breakthrough of Perez into the world and made Jesus Christ breach the hardest heart, the most unrepentant heart with his loving grace. That, like We have this opportunity for forgiveness. We have a chance for healing when we've done things that we cannot take back. We've said things we could not take back. God can deliver. He can save. He can help, but we must choose him. And Judah said, she has been more righteous than I, but doesn't that fall woefully short of saying, I have sinned, right? She's better than me, but Judah, what did you do? David said, I have sinned. That's what David said when he was confronted. It's a good place to be when we stop justifying ourselves as being right and we cease condemning others for the things we are guilty of ourselves and our self-righteous pride. Now David was brought to this place by the prophet and he penned Psalm 51. Let's turn to Psalm 51, verse 5. The whole psalm is good, but for our use today, this is a good point of application. Psalm 51, starting at verse 5. He said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, You desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Into a world of darkness, into hearts filled with darkness, the light and life of Jesus Christ has broken forth, He's provided atonement. He's provided redemption through his blood and his resurrection from the dead. It shows that he has the power to forgive, to heal, to save those who trust in him. And when we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9, it says, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, we don't deserve anything good from God because of our hypocrisy, because we have lied, we have deceived, we have sinned. But God gives more grace. He causes His grace to burst forth. It's, it's His grace that brings the breakthrough, not us trying harder to please Him. It's because of what He's done. Trusting in Him, repenting of our sin, choosing to say, you know what? When I say something, God help me to do that thing and to be faithful as you are faithful. We have not been true to keep our word, but God is faithful to keep His word to provide hope and salvation for all who trust in Him. So praise God that Jesus is our righteousness, that we can't undo what's been done, but we can do what he calls us to do, which is to repent and to trust him and to walk uprightly before him and bring him honor that he is worthy of. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this passage. Thank you for its relevance to our lives because, Lord, we have played the hypocrite. We have sinned. In sexual matters, we have been unfaithful uh, to you, and yet you are gracious and compassionate to us. And I pray that we would not use your grace as a cloak to cover our sin, but we would confess our sin so that we would be forgiven and healed and restored. Thank you, Lord, that you're a redeemer, that you can take just a really terrible situation that's full of death and deceit and treachery and bring life and grace and goodness out of it. And I thank you that you'll be faithful to do that in our lives as well because you have done it and you will continue to. So Lord, may you fill us with your spirit, give us recognition when uh, when we have been deceitful, when we have lied, when we have not kept the words that we have spoken and that you'd change our hearts, Lord. You'd make us more like you who are honest and transparent, godly, who, who, uh, who trust you and who rely upon you. Thank you, Lord, for your word and for your presence that there's hope for us in Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.